Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of our Lord. On Sunday, August 29th, 2005, you may recall that Hurricane Katrina made landfall. What followed, if you watched any of the scene unfold, was horrifying. The conservative totals were that 1,836 people died. Studies were done following to, to figure out why in this space in history, in a country this developed, such a tragedy could occur. The results of that were four overarching factors that boiled down to one reason. The first factor, they said, long-term warnings went unheeded and government officials neglected their duties to prepare for a forewarned catastrophe. Secondly, government officials took insufficient actions or made poor decisions in the days immediately before and after landfall. Third, systems on which officials relied to support their response efforts failed. And finally, government officials at all levels failed to provide effective leadership. In other words, we weren't ready. We simply were not ready. This morning, I want to talk about a ready church. How is a church ready? And we discover in the book of Acts, in this series on church, these marks from Acts 2, 42 through 47 of a ready church. Uh, they're not complicated. Uh, they are not complex. Uh, they are uh, very simple. A ready church is a preaching church. They devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, that word devoted uh, means to continue steadfastly. This was very early in the life of the church. Jesus has just ascended. The apostles would have been teaching about what we just sang the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they would have done that using the Old Testament. That's all the Bible they had at that point. Uh, Jesus did that on the Emmaus Road, didn't he? He went to the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets, and he preached or taught himself. And that's what we uh, see these apostles doing. We also see a pattern emerge of large and small. In the large... Uh, they are worshiping 
and hearing preaching in the small, they are meeting and eating and fellowshipping. Peter is the first guy to preach, and that's a surprise. Uh, Peter was just a rough fisherman. Uh, Nobody, I think, out of the 12 would have picked him to be that guy except Jesus. And so he is that, that guy who preaches the first sermon. Thousands had to be in his audience because 3,000 came to Christ that day. Uh, they met at the temple. There was a large colonnade there, and they met at the temple uh, where thousands could gather and the voice could carry. And so Peter's sermon deserves a look. Uh, we celebrate the first of anything, don't we? If, if you've had a baby, uh, that baby's first steps, you document. Uh, that baby's first words, uh, mom and dad vie. Will it be mama or dada, right? Uh, for baby's first words, baby's first haircut, you keep a little lock of it uh, uh, stored away somewhere. Uh, let's look at Peter's first sermon, and you'll find what I think is a model sermon for New Testament uh, preaching. Preaching goes back to talk about the future. The Old Testament either predicts or prepares for Jesus Christ. All of it points to Jesus Uh, Peter, in his sermon, which is the bulk of of Acts 2, and you'll uh, dive into that in your life groups this week, Peter, in his sermon, goes back to the Old Testament, back to King David, to the prophet Joel, and he talks about Jesus. Secondly, uh, uh, preaching preaches to, not at people. Uh, Peter didn't mince words. He said, you crucified, you killed Uh, New Testament preaching will call you out. The New Testament preaching will, as some people say, make your toes hurt. It will get into where you live. Uh, We appreciate a good meal that has uh, the the protein in it, the, the, the nutrients in it to get us down the road. Good preaching will do that. That's incidentally what distinguishes preaching from teaching. Teaching has as its goal information. Uh, It isn't preaching. As a matter of fact, some people can get so fed on teaching that they never hear anything about how their life needs to change from preaching. Preaching has as its goal transformation. There's a different goal in mind. Uh, Third, preaching has Jesus as the subject and people as the object, not the reverse. Jesus as the subject of the preaching and people as the object. Sadly, much of contemporary preaching is about how we can do better, live better lives, uh, steps one, two, and three to a better uh, you, uh, those kinds of things. Much modern day preaching is about what Jesus can do for you, not what he has already done for you. And so New Testament preaching is about uh, Christ and what he has done. This is why at Grace, and at least once a year, I'll talk about it. So here's our time, late February, to talk about beliefs, convictions, and preferences. Uh, We think about this often here. Uh, Beliefs are hills you die on. Uh, In our culture today, the line in the sand is your view of God's word. 
It is the quintessential line in the sand. If you believe God's word to be authoritative, if you believe God's word to be without any mixture of error, as we do here at this church unapologetically, then that determines your view on everything else. That's called a biblical worldview. And so at Grace, we take a biblical worldview. We have a high view of Scripture. And because of that, we believe God to be uh, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. One in three and three in one. Because of our high view of Scripture, we believe that Jesus came, that he died, that he resurrected, and that he's going to return. That's the gospel. Amen? That's what we believe. Because of our high view of Scripture, we have certain views on lifestyles, certain views on on life and when it begins and how valuable it is in the womb and how valuable it is when somebody is old and doesn't know his or her name anymore. That's because of our view of Scripture. We believe that one day Jesus Christ is going to visibly return. These are our beliefs. So we have a very few beliefs, but those are hills we die on. We don't fellowship with other churches who don't have a high view of Scripture. We just simply do not. We'll serve alongside them. We'll do different things, but they're not going to want me in their pulpit, and they're not going to be in this one. We have a high view of Scripture. We, uh, We must stand firm on beliefs. And then there are convictions. All right, everybody has convictions, right? Everybody does. Um, uh, we have conviction here at Grace of being debt-free. So we save and then we pay. That's a conviction of ours. Other churches borrow money. It doesn't mean they're right and we're uh, wrong or we're wrong and they're right. Or we're right and they're wrong. It doesn't mean that. It's just our conviction. That's it. We have a conviction here of multiple use of space. Meaning the space that you're sitting in will be run through with children at some point. Every, every week, it seems, in staff, we're navigating, okay, where are we going to put these people and how are they going to be there and how are we going to turn this room over and have it ready the very next morning for this thing we're doing because we believe that we should use space. That means here, we'll never build a massive building that, to worship in that will be used for two hours a week. We just can't do that. It's unconscionable to us, but other churches do it. And sometimes, no lie, I think it'd be fun to preach in a church with a bunch of stained glass, super pretty wood floors, and a big pipe organ behind me. I just think it'd be cool. But that's not us, is it? No, we got concrete and seven colors of chairs. So that's who we are. That's just conviction of ours. We're just going to use things again and again and again. And then there are preferences. Do you know that most churches fight over convictions and preferences? That's, that's where people get in their most arguments. What are preferences? Well, I, I dress like this to preach. I, I don't dress up. Uh, that's a preference we have here. You, not many of you dress up. And so that's a preference we have here. Uh, uh, we, we have a praise team and not a choir. It's just a preference of ours. Other churches dress up and they have choirs and, 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 and that kind of thing. We have keyboard, not an organ. You know, it's just preferences. You know what has been most tempting, uh, uh, or not most tempting, honestly it hasn't, but where I've heard the most rumble in the last two years, oh Jerry, if you, if, you just, if you just get into prophecy, if you just get into prophecy, if you would just connect Donald Trump and Joe Biden and put it all together and get, the, get into this, if, if you would just speak in to all of this stuff that is going on, do you know why I haven't? Number one, I'm dumb in prophecy, and, and I wish I knew more. Like, I, it's just, I studied the book of Revelation for a whole semester. Just that book. I read 1,200 pages 
only on the book of Revelation. And when I got finished, I thought I knew nothing. Like, I wish I knew more. It's never been my thing, and I respect David, Jeremiah, and other people who do, and I wish I had their knowledge. But the second reason is this, is that what I've discovered over over the past two years is that prophecy is often veiled as politics, and that, that we have for 21 years never brought that into this place, into this pulpit. And for, the, for whatever time God has me here, we never will. Why? Because other places, the Rotary Club does not preach. That is not their job. Uh, the Republicans and the Democrats do not preach. There is one place that is called to preach the gospel, and it is the church of Jesus Christ. And it may sound old school to you. It may sound old-fashioned, or it may sound self-aggrandizing because I'm a preacher. It is Whatever you may think about it, we are called to be a preaching church, and a ready church is a preaching church. We will preach the gospel. It is absolutely critical that we not get in the weeds and distract from the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, gospel-centered preaching has its effect. What happened? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I love that. Peter preaches and their heart is pierced. Paul, writing later, Romans 10 says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the what? What does it say, class? Say it loud, the what? That's preaching. It's the good news. That's That's the subject. A ready church is a preaching church. Secondly, a ready church is a together church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There is a pattern here. I've said that already. They meet in the large, they meet in the small. Uh, 3,000 coming to Christ in one day means there are a lot of people, but then they're going into homes, and that would be by necessity of space, smaller group of people. And so the the word fellowship shows up here. It shows up maybe a dozen or so times in the New Testament, but only only once in the book of Acts. And it it means uh, tight-knit. It means uh, to share things with one another. So what did they do in the small? They broke bread and prayed. Uh, Broke bread, uh, scholars wonder, is this uh, the Lord's Supper? Uh, Is it a meal? Is it both? And where they've landed is that it's at least a meal. They, they ate together. They, they sat down and ate together, and, uh, and it could have included the Lord's Supper. It's hard to say because they don't say that here. But, but what it does mean is they got together, and they, they fellowshiped, they ate, they worshiped, they ate together, they prayed together. The key word is together. They even sold some of their possessions and gave them to the poor members of the community, these new believers. Now, some have errantly said that this was the beginning of communism, that this was socialism in the early church. The problem with that statement is uh, the very next verse, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. If it's communism, there is no such thing as a possessive in front of a, 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 of a possession, right? So, so it's, no, 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 you can't say that. They still own their homes. They just gave some of what they had. They shared some of what they had with others. But it's the word together I want to focus on. It means with one accord, 
with one accord. It's a unique Greek word, and 10 of its 12 occurrences are in the book of Acts. They met in one accord. They worshiped in one accord. Um, One commentator writes, the image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. So let me me just demonstrate that for you. I was thinking about this week when, as a kid, uh, I lived in a church parsonage. I don't know how many of you lived in church parsonages, but we got the leftover piano. All right, so, so the church had bought a new piano, and there was one left, and they just put it in our, our living room. None of us played, and there was no place to store it, clearly, right? So comes across the street. It's in, in there. So one day in sixth grade, I sit down, and I'm like, I should, I should see what happens when I hit a key on this thing. No lie. That's what I did, and I remember just hitting, hitting this middle C. I didn't know what it was called. It was just this key. And I hit it, and I'm like, wow, that's that, you know. And then I thought, I thought, no, that does not sound right. That just sounds really weird, dissonant. I didn't know the word then, but that sounds just not right. And then I went, oh, that sounds good. And so here I am in sixth grade, and I'm going, no, 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 that doesn't sound right. And I remember going, oh. I don't know what that's called, but it goes together. That's what it means to be in one accord. It isn't that all the notes are the same, because they aren't here. If we did middle C, this is ominous. Like, you think somebody's going to come through the door at that point, right? That, that's scary. But all of a sudden, that's different, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? very first song I learned, I remember, was What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's why we grew up singing those old songs. It sounded awful. Just like that. Right. And then... And I learned. I go every day and sit there and figure out how these notes came together. How, how did they fit together? That's together. So unity is not unanimity. You won't always agree. As a matter of fact, you never will agree on everything. If you're looking for that, if you're joining a life group thinking we're all going to get together, and we're all going to dot our I's the same and cross our T's the same, then no, no, no. You need to be in a life group with yourself. And just you. And then you'll discover you disagree with yourself. Yeah, unity is not unanimity. Uh, unity is not uniformity. No, you, we don't all look alike. Thank God, right? Like, like some of you have hair and others of you, there's a reflection. Uh, we, we, we don't all look alike. We're, we're different. Unity is union. Unity is union. Uh, we are together because we are one. We are not one just because we come together. Unity is, takes work. We are together because we are one. Uh, we are not one because we are together. You see, unity is a hill worth dying on. As a matter of fact, in the early church, uh, they said, Later in the book of Acts, if you bring your gift to the altar, meaning if you come to worship and you have something against your brother and sister, this isn't the place for you. This isn't it. Leave here. 
Go take care of what you have against your brother and sister. This is inauthentic worship. You say, Jerry, for real? Have you ever fought with your husband or wife and tried to sing a song beside them? That's weird. That's really weird. Like you get into church and you're like, that felt weird. We're yelling at each other and now we're singing praises to God. It is just as weird, just as strange, just as foreign to have it out with somebody else and expect to stand in the same room and worship the same God. Unity is essential. You cannot love your father in heaven and despise your sister on earth at the same time. And for us, this happens in life groups, and there are places where people get to know one another, and they're messy. They're not always easy, but they're good. At Grace, we say life groups exist to Velcro people to God's Word and one another. That's why we come together in a life group. We come around God's Word, and we come uh, uh, to, to, to be with one another, to do life together. A ready church is a preaching church. A ready church is a together church, and then we will be an evangelistic church. And it comes in that order. It comes in that order. People don't want to join a mess, do they? Uh, people don't want to come into a mess. They just really don't want to be part of confusion unless they're confusing, and then the, the, you know, people will gravitate toward that. So what happened when, when, when the thousands of people show up at the temple and, and they're wondering what in the world is going on? It says, an awe, A-W-E, came upon every soul. That means outsiders. The thousands gathered outside the temple were awestruck to see the work of God uh, on the lives of those who had decided to follow Jesus, which was a costly decision because they were leaving the comforts of their family and businesses and homes and, and relationships. It was costly for them to follow Jesus. The apostles were doing signs and wonders, which in the book of Acts always add to the message of Jesus, never supplant it. It always supports the message of Jesus. And the writer says, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God does the adding, doesn't he? You know, here at Grace, we don't set attendance goals. We don't set baptism goals. We, we don't do those things. Now, we get excited about that. Uh, so excited that I want to share something with you. Check out the screen. So look to your left. Just look up and to your left. You will see a massive sign, heaven roars. In 2022, what we plan to do is the top word heaven. Every time a new guest comes to grace, we've got everything lit today, we'll just turn in another light bulb there. 
And then the bottom, every first Wednesday, which is when we almost always baptize people, we'll turn in another light bulb. Because Scripture says that when someone comes to Jesus, heaven celebrates. Amen? Heaven roars. And if you've been here on a first Wednesday, which we'll have this Wednesday, when somebody goes into the waters of baptism and they come out, this place roars. Uh, people celebrate. They shout. And in 2022, we want to make heaven roar. Uh, not because we save anyone, but because the Lord does. This week on Monday, I went to the hospital. Went to see James and to see Ashley. James, 91 years old, James Davis, he has served the Lord almost all his life. Uh, you may not know about James that he's been a farmer and a builder, and he has put more churches, church buildings in the dry as a gift than I'm sure he even knows. As a matter of fact, years ago when we badly needed space, we only had this building at that time, and we were going to build our youth, what, what uh, used to be our youth building across campus. James did not attend here, but I got a phone call, and he wanted to do lunch. And he looked at me, and he said, I'll do one of two things. I'll write you a check for 5000 or I'll bring my crew in and we'll get your building in the drive. I said, James, get our building in the drive. And he did. This week he's looked into heaven. He's called out to Mimi, his wife. He's reached up toward heaven. And he said, Look at everybody over there. It's been sweet. I left James' room and I went across the hospital to visit Ashley. He's 34. His liver has failed. His kidneys are failing. And the doctors have said, unless there's a miracle... He won't make it. Ashley's attended our church a few times until Monday. He and I had never had a conversation. You see, what James told me several months ago was, Jerry, I had a dream. And in my dream, hundreds of people were giving their lives to Jesus. I walked into Ashley's room, began to ask him some questions, spiritual in nature. And he said, Jerry, I believe in Jesus, but I don't, I believe in God, but I, I don't believe in Jesus. How do, you, how do you feel, Ashley? I'm scared. What a study in contrast. I began to talk to Ashley and answer some questions for him. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to be a deathbed Christian. 
I said, could I tell you a story? One that Jesus told about a guy who owned a vineyard. And one guy showed up at 6A and another came at 9 and another came at noon and another came at 3. And one didn't get there till 5 p.m. And when it came time to pay, they all got paid the same. He said, why? I said, because their pay depended on not on what they did, but on the heart of the owner of the vineyard. He had determined what they were going to make. He said, that's a cop-out. I said, you know, Paul thought it was too. So much so that he struggled with it and and wrote a letter about it to a bunch of people called the Romans. And if I were you, I'd go read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and I'd land on 8. He's a thinking person, Ashley, he is. And I, I said, and if you want to write down, I'll answer any question you have on any verse. Just write it down. I'll come and sit in this room with you and answer your questions. And he said, I'll do that. Thursday, I walked in to see James, who clearly was closer to heaven. I walked across the hospital and into Ashley's room. We sat down and we began to talk. And somebody came in and he sent them out. And then when they left, he looked at me and he said, I have to get saved. I said, what? He said, oh, yes, I've read Romans. He said, I didn't know. I lacked knowledge. I did not know. I did not know this, and I have to get saved. And in that room, Ashley gave his life to Christ. Do you know what happened in heaven? He roared. And do you know if James goes to see Jesus today and if Ashley doesn't make it and he goes to see Jesus in a week or two or three or four, do you know what heaven will do when James walks in and heaven will do when Ashley walks in? Do you get that? Do you get that though Ashley may have lived four weeks for Jesus and did nothing physical and James spent 80 years walking with the Lord, when they both get into heaven, heaven's going to celebrate them both. That's called grace, amen? That's grace. That's our Lord. That's our Jesus. That is the love. Our team is gonna come back and we're gonna sing that again because we're gonna sing that now with some meaning because perhaps for me, I'd never in all my ministry seen the juxtaposition of a God who in his grace, in his grace says, listen, your deathbed conversion is my joy. And James, your life living for Jesus is my joy because in both of those, I see my son who died, who resurrected, who ascended, and who one day will return, amen? That is our God, and that is his great grace. So I would say to you this morning as we sing, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, oh, why would you turn from a God who is so faithful? Why would you turn from a God who loves the Ashleys who are lying in the hospital? Why would you turn from a God who would say, come on in? Why would you turn from him? Why would you not come to him? I'll be down here. Uh, Alan Michael will be down here. If you don't know Jesus, you can come pray. If you're in here this morning and your life is as Dave described earlier, and you just need a pastor to pray with you, we'd love to pray for you and to pray with you.
And we have a Father who loves us deeply. If you're not plugged into a life group, gosh, you need it. You need the fellowship, the love. Let's stand. Let's sing. You come.